Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another week of Fringe Religion. My name is Zelda Reed. I am your host and your um, curious little co-wanderer on this journey. I am so excited about this week's episode, which you may not gather from how long it took me to put out, but I swear this was one of the best conversations that I've had in recent memory. Um, Certainly a lot to glean from it. And this conversation was with Letitia Barbier, who is a independent tarot scholar, tarot reader, and the head librarian at Morbid Anatomy Library right here in New York City. Morbid Anatomy is a research library and private collection for different oddities, curiosities, and death artifacts. And they are so lucky to have Letitia on board because she knows her way around those things. She is also the author of this beautiful book called Tarot and Divination Cards, a Visual Archive, which if you want to learn more about the stuff that we have coming up, it is a great resource. And flipping through and seeing some of the beautiful photographs of all of the people and artifacts that make up tarot history, it was um, a very beautiful thing to be able to have. It's like very beautifully bound too. Yeah, so this week's upcoming episode is about tarot cards and their place in religious studies, whether or not they deserve to be included in religious studies, and how it is that they show up and use religious symbols, and also how they have formed a very unique culture that is situated almost perfectly between the sacred and profane. I definitely learned a lot from this conversation. If any of you listening read tarot cards or incorporate them into your own practices, whatever they may be, you will definitely glean a lot of insight about that process, especially towards the end of the episode. Letitia offers some of her sage wisdom on the wrong way to read tarot and perhaps the history of dogmatism in reading those cards. Um, I personally found it to be a very fruitful and enlightening conversation in terms of being playful with different practices that people may or may not bring into their spiritual lives. And it certainly gave me an appreciation also for physical artifacts as an integral component of material culture. Like I, the way that she describes these cards and feeling a connection to them when you share space with this beautiful art that's so thoughtfully curated, I um, certainly gained a deeper appreciation for those sorts of things, whereas, you know, sometimes I become a bit, um, a bit hardened in my own practice, and I think, oh, I shouldn't have any sort of uh, material that ties me down to the earth, but um, yeah, definitely definitely made me second guess that maybe and uh, think a bit more about the different ways that material culture can inform a relationship not only with yourself but things beyond yourself. Yeah, so if you're new here, thank you so much for checking out the podcast. If you're returning, thank you so much for coming back. I deeply appreciate it. My name is Zelda Reed, like I said, and this is Fringe Religion. It's an independent project that I started by myself, just as someone that's really curious about uh, religious oddities and symbol and things like that. And so far, I've been really smitten with how this project has been going. So if you want to keep up with it, you can find me on Instagram at Fringe Religion Pod, I think. You'll be able to find me on Instagram at fringe.religion and also on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fringe religion. Like I said, I do this by myself. So any financial support you can throw towards the podcast or any um, community support, you know, like sharing it with your friends is deeply felt and deeply, um, deeply heard. <laughs> um, yeah, if you also want to leave five stars or however many stars you feel inclined to leave, I would love that. If you have any suggestions for people that you want to hear on the podcast, especially if they're based out of New York City, I would love to hear about it. And yeah, thank you so much for uh, coming and stopping by. I hope you enjoy the next uh, 45 minutes of your life.
All right, here we go. Um, so Letitia, as I was talking to people about tarot, one of the most common questions that people had for me was the history of the actual cards and where they come from because they're quite ubiquitous now and you see them everywhere. But sometimes, you know, the, the symbology of it gets lost mm -hmm. or the origin story of it gets lost. So I was wondering if you could give the people a quick rundown. Oh, of course, Three. I will give. I will give. I will give that to the people. No problem. Um, so the topic of card tarot history is um, is always super interesting uh, because it's a it's a complex topic uh, to build history around. One of the reason around that is that the card, you know, like to to do factual history, we need um, physical evidence and. Uh, a lot of the card games, um, unfortunately, have been lost to time. So the earliest example we have uh, in the Western world are uh, they were created in Italy, in northern Italy, in the 15th century. And they were um, invented as a game uh, about a century before that. Uh, card games were started to circulate around Europe uh, from the Mediterranean to the rest, you know, northern uh, Europe. Um, and they became very popular. Uh, the, the card game, uh, or said, again, you know, like histori historian debates that, but there is very strong evidence that the um, card game, the card game that we uh, used, which was very close to the tarot at that point, um, came from northern Africa. It came from the, the Mamluk Empire. And we believe, um, it was when I say this, it was very close to the tarot, it's because the nomenclature of the game was very similar. It had four suits. Mm -hmm. One was uh, uh, swords, but, you know, like the Arabic swords were curved. They were like scimitars. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Marseille decks, for example, now, you still have the swords will be the curved. Um, the curved lines. Uh, you had swords, polo sticks, coins, and cups. And the the the, the Mamluk deck, the um, Arabic deck, uh, also had sets of court cards. But because they they were part of the um, the Islamic world, uh, the um, they were not they were non-figurative. So they were basically represented. They represented people, mm. but they were uh, illustrated with. Uh, poems and uh, Arab calligraphy, and they are very beautiful. Um, you can uh, find uh, them online. There is also like a, a couple of people that are trying to restore those decks um, for people to play with. Uh, and so the the idea, the one of the consensus is that through commerce with Venice and with the other exchange with Spain, uh, card games circulated uh, from Northern Africa to uh, Spain and Italy, and uh, and it took about a century for people to be really into them. And uh, the Italians were like, oh yeah, we really enjoy playing those cards. What about we make them make the game more difficult by inventing um, another group of cards to augment the game and then complexify it. And, um, and so they invented this fifth suit of um, cards that were um, illustrated with pictures. Uh, and at that point in Northern Italy, they were called it was called the suit of triumph, triumphy. Uh, and so the, the triumphy um, cards are the ancestors of what we call now the major arcana. They were basically this oh. illustrative, this set of uh, extra illustrated cards showing characters or scenes that were um, here to um, complexify a game of trick taking. And, uh, and so the Italians invented them. So technically, the, the tarot, uh, which it was not called a tarot at that point, it was called Game of Triumph, um, was probably very likely invented in northern Italy uh, in the uh, 15th century, and it was invented as a game, not as an esoteric uh, tool. It was okay. uh, a game. The, the thing that uh, fascinates people is that those um, major arcana, what we call the, the term major arcana is like from the 19th century, but I'll use it anyway mm -hmm. to describe those cool cards. Um, the, those cards um, are very enigmatic because, they, well, because of the illustration they have. So a couple of things that you need to know is that uh, from the 15th century to around the 17th, 18th century, the major arcana could represent a lot of different things. And so mm -hmm. there, this 
the sequence of image we're used to with you know the Rider Waite Smith for example or the uh, the Marseille deck the sequence and the specific order changed a lot throughout the time and it kind of mm. calcified around the uh, 17th and 18th century because of game development not yet esoteric uh, uh. Uh, understanding so what do you mean when you say it was a game and not an esoteric thing just for listeners that may not be familiar at all with tarot like how was how was it originally played well, so that's that's, not that's a. It was played like a card game, you know, like the same way we play poker or another game. You know, the the thing is with a very much like a card game, the the games, and that, that I think it really partakes too to like a, just a, a larger understanding of cartomancy in general. Mm-hmm. You know, like p- card games are tools, whether they're used for games or for divination. Um, people use them according to an impulse that sometimes is very, very, very much like music in a certain sense, you know, like people, there is guitars everywhere in the world. People play it differently and they play different type of music. Sometimes there is connection from one musical culture to the next. That's the same way with games. And that's the same way with cards and fortune fortune telling as well. Um, We don't know if cards were used for um, fortune telling until the 18th century for a couple of reasons uh, because it was taboo you know it was condemned mm. by the church gaming you know playing the cards were condemned by the church so you have a lot of texts in the you know like 16th century which is like oh games you know like the this is um, corrupting the soul <laughs> of our <laughs> of our uh, Catholic um, um, you know like uh, disciples uh, and then usually games had a very bad reputation with um, the Christian church. Uh, one one of them being is, uh, you probably know that, the, um, during the crucifixion, Roman soldier played dice and gambled to get the code of Christ. So very often, mm-hmm. if you look at medieval, uh, late medieval painting and early Renaissance, you'll find dice under the, the crucifix. Uh, you'll find mm-hmm. a, a memento mori and then sometimes a couple of dice. But um, so... Um, people used to play play those cards like games uh, and maybe do other stuff like trying to scribe for information. But because it was taboo, uh, there is no record. Uh, mm. There is very little uh, traces of um, cartomantic use. Doesn't mean that it didn't exist. Means that we don't really, you know, it was um, probably an oral tradition or something that people would mm-hmm. do, you know, like behind closed doors. Um, the official birth of uh, the esoteric tarot is very specific (laughs) and it's from uh, 18th century France Um, and usually like it's a it's one of those things where you know like everything in the tarot is kind of ethereal and and we don't really have hard evidence but there is this one thing that kind of like landed on everyone in the 18th centuries Um, there is a a French man whose name was Antoine Courte de Gabelin Antoine Court of Gabelin. I guess I call He was a Freemason and he was also a pastor. And um, and so that um, that give you a little bit of um, like paint, like paint part of his character spiritually uh, at the time. And um, and so he was very close to, you know, like the, the royal courts and he was considered like an eminence uh, intellectually and and uh, spiritually. And um he, he had this very large project, like an encyclopedic project called The Primeval World, which was this huge encyclopedic work um, tying together early version of what you'd call etymology or linguistic, uh, describing, you know, like anthropology, or at that point it was not really anthropology, but like, you know, the, this was pre, you know, right before uh, the development of rational science and a lot of those discipline. I also would say that it was before Champollion translated the hieroglyphs. And so at that point in history when uh, Antoine Cour de Gébelin write that book, hieroglyphs, Egyptian drawings, uh, have not been deciphered. And uh-huh. a lot of people are kind of like understanding them somehow as uh, a sacred language made out of image. And at that point, the Freemason really oh. went uh, through that line, trying to basically imagine mas- masonry as some kind of like reconnecting to Egyptian mystery schools oh, because okay. they couldn't understand. 
mm-hmm. you know they thought okay uh egyptian had very elaborated um um you know like re- ritualistic um, death rites and also like very complex pantheon of gods um and so they they must have been you know everything is mysterious and like overlaid with like a, a sheer layer of Egyptian Egyptomania so anyway yeah. like this was a parenthesis but Antoine Croix de Gamelin come from that cult- comes d- directly from that culture and uh, mm-hmm. in uh, the primeval world he writes a chapter on tarot and he basically throw a nuclear bomb in that chapter saying uh, and you can find that there is translation of it and I've read it many times in France as well you know it's like something you can find online very easily basically he says that once well there is this game that people play called a tarot it's a set of cards and it has a set of uh, illustrated um, arcanas or no he doesn't use the term arcanas but a set of illustrated cards and that once it was in a salon in France in Paris and he was invited to participate to a game of tarot and then he was given the card and he was very stricken by them because of the illustration they carried mm-hmm. and what he saw, what he what he says, is that, of course, being a Freemason, uh, he looked at the deck for fifteen minutes, and uh, he recognized that those cards, those illustrated cards that the deck had, were in fact the last book of Thoth, uh, huh. which is, um, you know, basically the the a compendium of um, Egyptian Hermetic uh, science, and so. In the primeval world, uh, Antoine Cour de Gabelin basically threw that nuclear bomb saying, Tarot is the forgotten um, um, book, Egyptian book of uh, spiritual mysteries. Uh, and he drew that conclusion just because, because of a, the image being yeah. associated with language or yeah. some sort of he sacred. So, like, he looked okay. at the papes and he said, like, this is definitely, look at that veil. This is Isis in disguise. And, of course, it's been kind of, like, uh, catholically whitewashed. To just, uh, and so, like, he comes with an explanation for all that thing. And when he says this in that book, it has a re- it's going to have a ripple effect mm-hmm. uh, for the next... Um, 150 years in the occult uh, circles. Uh, so an association in these occult yeah. circles of the last book of Toth being yeah. associated with yeah. the tarot cards? Yeah, basically people are going to believe that the tarot uh, is actually a, s- a sacred book from Egypt. Oh, and um, okay. and that um, the, the you know people are not understanding this because it's only for initiated. But uh, the major arcana are basically like some kind of um, repository of um, lost knowledge that only initiated, quote unquote, only a bunch of white guys are able to decipher and and connect. And so until, you know, basically until the beginning of the 20th century, this idea that uh, the tarot comes from ancient Egypt isn't questioned by no one. You know, oh, okay. and then in the fifties, you have you start to have like like na- late nineteenth century, and historians start to be interested in trying to find out what's up, and uh, and of course, tarot doesn't come from Egypt; it comes from northern Italy from the fifteenth century, oh. and uh, and there is a point where occultists were you know became by default the historian because they wanted to kind of defend their own doctrine and mm-hmm. try to you know shape history uh, in a way that arranged them but we can't really blame them you know Antoine Cour de Gabelin you know like it was just like this information didn't circulate it the same way and uh, there was a lot of room for uh, speculation as well mm-hmm. at that time so as a side note it's just really interesting how much like the Egyptomania yeah. Egyptomania uh, really influenced Freemasonry to uh-huh. the point that now like I went to college in DC and so you see all this Freemason architecture uh-huh. and there's like obelisks yeah. and all of these images that are like uh, like sphinxes and things like that. So it's interesting that mm-hmm. for like 300 years or something there's this veil of um like exotification yeah. of Egypt that persisted to the study of the tarot. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, yeah, I think, I think, and for, for good reason, you know, I think that, uh, Egyptians were believed to have very complex, sophisticated, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, ritualized, uh, life. Also like the fact that they were, you know, their, their Kings were, uh, and Queens were considered like, walking divinities you know there's something just uh, i don't know i found that really fascinating and again you know like until champollion um champollion uh translated the hieroglyph 
people were just basically looking at the pyramid, looking at all those like incredible monuments, um, not really understanding. Where are the symbols of the tarot associated back to beyond the original like Islamic deck? So they come from uh, they come from the 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 time they were invented really you know mm. like they come from Italy 15th century if you look at the seven first cards of course uh, you have to detach yourself uh, from the Rider Waite Smith which is you know hyperbolic yeah. you can see the the fool uh, you can see the 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 magician but he's not a magician really he's more kind of a yeah street magician you mm-hmm. know or maybe an artisan he's a man with a table and stuff on it the emperor. Uh, the Empress, the Pope. So they are basically stuck characters showing different layers of power, uh, different demographics. You mm-hmm. know, and then interestingly, all that first row, um, you'll find them as well in iconography, like the Dance of Death. You know, like in Germany, oh. and you know where you know each skeleton is dancing with a a knight, um, a king, an emperor, a pope. Uh, usually a pilgrim, which is very close to the hermit card, mm-hmm. uh, and the nun, you know, like the mother superior of a convent, uh, which you know could be seen also as like the you know like expression of the the spiritual feminine, so the high, you know, the papess. The only qu- the big question is the papess, the the lady pope, yeah, uh, because that that one um, really puzzles scholars, and uh, there is a lot of you know like. Uh, incredible research and we have a you know a strong understanding of what that card probably is uh, but uh, it might be an allegory of the church it might be a reference um, directly to a part of the Visconti lineage who had a um, family lady family members who were worshiping a woman uh, oh, wow. who was um, uh, who was uh, seen as a uh, feminine Christ and uh, everyone was burned at stake at some point. Oh, wow. um, what's her name? Sister Manfreda, I think. In Catholic iconography, plain and simple. You mm-hmm. know, the, the devil uh, is a very Catholic Christian devil. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the very early cards, which we don't have much of, are really showing, you know, depiction that you'll find echoes of in, um, you know, like Italian church uh, in Padua or Modena. Uh, the Last Judgment, of course, which, you know, is a card that definitely quotes, you know, doom painting traditions in um, late medieval and early Renaissance, you know, like the angel trumpeting the, the rapture, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, and except that in the in the tarot version, you you only have the angels and the, the dead rising from the grave. You don't have any um, understanding of the direction they're going to, neither mm-hmm. heaven or hell. So regional tarot decks are really informed by the religious context well, of those areas. Well, yeah, you know, and then they were just, you know, at that point, um, and of course, you know, like this is, the, it does, it's like very important to say, but at that point in history, most of Europe was Catholic, you know, mm-hmm. like so, um, so the they, they are, you know, like card games are very much infused with the, the social politics of that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, even the card games that are not tarot, uh, really, um, some other cards, you know, so from one deck to the next, you have like, um, uh, for example, things that are drawn from um, uh, a medieval understanding of the antique world. Mm-hmm. You know, the Wheel of Fortune is part of that, you know, like being some kind of rekindling with the image of the goddess Fortuna, uh, which, of course, comes from, um, you know, like uh, the antique world, um, Greek and Roman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, kind of um, was reintroduced during the, the medieval mm-hmm. uh, era. So that's interesting that even though it was very against the Catholic code of conduct to be engaging in card games, it's like at the same time they're trying to put Catholic virtues into these decks. But I think they were just, you know, part of like images that were like largely available. In, and um, if you look at the 15th century decks from the aristocracy, they were, um, those were decks that were not meant to be played really. They were meant to be admired uh, mm-hmm. like um, like little museums. The cards are hand painted. Uh, they are gold leaf. They're, they are like so beautiful. You know, they've never been played. Uh, it's impossible, you know, they will have been damaged in such ways. Mm. So basically they were shown, they were um, commissioned by the the Italian aristocracy as a status symbol, really. Ah, uh, that's interesting. The, the, the car that, uh, the car that were played at the time, unfortunately we don't know how they look like. They might mm. have looked the same, they probably did, 
but we don't have any evidence because all the cards are they will the cards were basically printed on paper with wood blocks some in some you know countries like France they will bag them up with like a different layers of paper but uh, they were supposed to last for three or four games and then be thrown tossed away and um and so you know sometimes yeah. an historian open a big book and find like a whole sheet of cards that used that was used as like a you know like a how do you call that a, a bookmark so, so sometimes where we have like uh, like cards turning up the recently in france they found a Uh, one of the earliest example of the Marseille, or one of the earliest, the earliest uh, to date example of the Marseille deck, which was from like the basically very early, like the I want to say like 1620s. So yeah, sometimes you know like very old card deck turn up, and it allows to kind of re like reshift or understand mm. you know, those cards and where they come from. And yeah, especially since it's uh, since it's a material culture that was yeah. so uh, hidden, you know, or it had to be for people's like safety. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it is interesting that like one discovery can completely shift understandings of things, and that um, yeah, well, there's the, probably a lot that we don't know about this. Yeah, there is a. I, I, I talk about it in the book. We don't have any 15th century devil cards, and so uh, there is this great tarot scholar, which um, you know is one of her foremother, Mary K. Greer, who I love very much. She's a, a, a tarot practitioner and also a tarot historian. And uh, I remember reading this article where she questioned, she's like, where, where are the devil cards? You know, like, and so she started trying to scratch back to see, you know, like, and what she found is that um, there is, you know, like they, they either been destroyed or stolen. And, uh, and that we don't really know what happened to them, except that uh, another scholar, Andrea Vitali, uh, was great too, <laughs> found a transcript from the 16th century about a woman uh, who got trialed by the Inquisition because she made a spell with a devil card. And she was caught doing a love spell. So like she was, there was this uh. whole transcript talking, describing how like she used the card as a little altarpiece and then... Um, Uh, detached her hair and then make made a candle uh, with like stolen wick and oil from a, a church, and then she basically prayed the souls of um, the exec uh, executed to get like romantic favors from a man, and she got caught. So, so maybe this gives us a you know like a a clue, a little you know glimpse on what those cards were used that we don't really know about. Going off that story of the woman, now that I think about it. I never hear stories about men practicing tarot before the occult revival. Yeah. Um, so I'm imagining like in Italy and like when tarot was first really taking off, do you find well, that there's any evidence for gendered lines? So what I, my, and again, my understanding is based of, you know, like just what I, what I, what I read and what I understand, uh, which is, you know, 18 and 18 and 19th century uh, cartomancy culture. There's a huge divide Um, or first, you know, like fortune telling was one of the few jobs that women could do mm -hmm. and be independent, like prostitution, you know, like there was this weird kind of like interlope line of work where women um, were able to exist uh, and be independent by just giving, you know, selling those services, mm -hmm. fortune telling services. Especially in medieval Europe, it seems like those two things like witchcraft, midwifery, mm -hmm prostitution were the three things yeah. that any single woman could actually do to sustain themselves yeah yeah and so like uh, historically in france um the first the first cartomancer uh officially uh, is this man named uh, uh jean-baptiste ayette aka Eteya. uh he's considered the first cartomancer uh, because he coins the term cartomancy technically coined the term cartonomancy but there was a typo or the the editor was like this is too long we're going to call it cartomancy uh but uh, he's the he's the first cartomancer uh technically because he wrote the first uh book on cartomancy on the art of reading uh using playing card not tarot playing card mm. Uh, for, um, uh, you know, like the science, you know, they always had to put, this is not fortune telling, this is scientific. Uh, and so from the 18th, 18th century on, you start to have this culture of like people, men, mostly publishing books, 
uh, about um, the art and science of reading cards. You know, of course, it probably had been practiced by women before, but uh, men were uh, the one who were, were able to publish books about it. So historically... Probably without a, getting killed for it. Yeah, we're just, you know, trying <laughs> to p- pretend, being, you know. Yeah. So the, the the other famous, you know, like the the, the most famous cartom- lady cartomancer we have uh, in France is uh, Mademoiselle Lenormand. Uh, who was um, she was she used playing cards she didn't use you know because there is this whole s- divination system called the Normand system which is a card divination system uh, she didn't read with that it was invented after her uh, she read uh, piquet decks or playing cards she also was like a, a palm reader and uh, she's very famous because she read to a lot of celebrities including Napoleon and Josephine the Empress and people during the French Revolution and uh and she wrote a lot too so <laughs> she mm-hmm. wrote she's a you know like a, t- by today's standards she would be considered um an unethical reader because she kind of completely spilled the beans on all the people she read and after oh, they died right. she's like yeah yeah uh and you can oh, still just after they died yeah after they died yeah, oh, okay. yeah. you know she's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like this is the hand of Napoleon and this happened and that and and of course, everything I said was right. So you get all of these men writing about the yeah. uh, like science of tarot, yeah. the how you have to study things. Yeah. So how do we get from there where it's um, a, a hidden science, yeah. or not even that hidden, but a science and associated with you know more hidden or mysterious aspects mm-hmm. of the occult mm-hmm. to the point that we're at now where you can walk down a street and there will be like three shops with cards in no, front of it it seems like everybody existed. has cards that always really exists. yeah yeah, yeah. That, like that's everybody the thing. has always had cards which well, just you know like the at some point you know like 18th century the church stop start to you know like the there is you know like so many like social political um changes you know the french revolution and the the church the separation of church and state and uh, and so suddenly people have a lot less feel a lot less pressured uh, to do the stuff that they've always done you know using tools that produce chance you know like dice cards other stuff to scry into them and then uh, maybe find you know like answers uh, because of course you know people have done that forever whether it was accepted or not people are prone to do this mm. uh, and using any anything card included um, the um, in the 19th century with the, the industrial revolution it, the things start to get a little crazier because people start to invent systems of cards that are um, geared for people not for occultists you know they start mm. to kind of manufacture you know all those like like card games that are for people you know they're usually called parlor divination so they're really angled at women <laughs> mm-hmm. and the illustrations uh there are such great bo- uh, decks too because they they really give you an insights on on women's uh, life and problems and preoccupation and fears and hopes etc uh, so know. these were more like oracle decks they were kind of yeah because they were they're illustri- not like the same yeah they were like Arcana. illustrated oracle decks and but uh, you find that you know for you know, you'd find uh, you know, at the newsstands, like the booklets that uh, teach you how to transform a regular playing card deck into like um, a divination deck by just telling you this card means this, this card means that. This, those are ways oh. to spread the cards. So like the that culture really gets started to become very, very openly popular in the um, in the 19th century and uh, and kind of boom with industrialization where card maker are kind of buying each other and then becoming you know like mm. getting those like big factories and printing process change and they are like oh we can kind of that game that we had that had a lot of mysterious images we kind of we can repurpose it into uh, a, a divination system uh, or an oracle deck you know mm. the the famously the le normand deck was uh, basically uh, a card game that had nothing to do with divination that was called a game of hope that was a card game with like little objects on it keys birds um chateau i don't know like fish stuff like little symbol in it and the, the guy was like okay i'm just gonna market that as the the divination game of mademoiselle le normand that famous 19th cent- mm-hmm. uh, 18th century reader and uh and it completely blew up and um People still read that deck today, you know. Like it's it has no connection to the actual woman, mm-hmm. but uh, it became a system on its own, and it is wrapped in mystique, and uh, and that's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so it went from this thing that was incredibly personalized 
in terms of the practice being really personal and regionally specific to then a thing that becomes a bit more uh uniform with like the the mass production of these things and like well, the yeah. profit that's being able well, you're just to be like the, the practice being completely democratized. Your people just do it for fun. It's something they do after dinner to entertain themselves. You know, they mm. they look at stereoscopes. You know, there is all this. You know, especially in America, you you see that too. You know, like, like 19th century, you have all this like fun. You know, like fortune telling cakes or all that stuff. It was just a culture, a culture of mm. entertainment. It didn't have any necessary. You know, like um, you know, strong spiritual. Um, undertone but uh, people used to just do that to entertain Ah. themselves so on that note um like in terms of including tarot in religious studies do you Mm. feel like it belongs in being classified as something that is religious or spiritual or more as just this is something that's fun this is something that's um you know meant for entertainment because a lot of people in my life, the way that they speak about tarot is something that is incredibly personal and spiritual yeah. to them in the way that many people talk about prayer or yeah. something. Well, I think, you know, like I think, I, I think you know, as a tarot reader, I read cards every day, sometimes for myself, most f- mostly for people. Uh, I don't think my tarot deck is sacred, but I think that the relationship I have with it is um, sacred. Uh, it doesn't mean that I... I I I feel strongly that uh, it's only secret. You know, I think that tarot exists in this perfect liminal space between vulgar and sacred. You know, profane and secret. Uh, so I think it's just like it depends on everyone's personal relationship to it. Mm-hmm. I think it belongs to spiritual um, uh, studies because it's been uh, something that people owned and and reappropriate in the context of some of the, you know, like mo- modern religion or um, modern, you know, like the, the whole idea with the Golden Dawn leading to the Rider Waite Smiths. It's an important part of, um, you know, like the British revival. Yeah, you didn't know that? No, the Golden Dawn is what led to the creation of the Rider uh, Yeah, Rider-Waite of, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, well, uh, Arthur Edward Waite was a member of the Golden Dawn. Uh, Arthur Edward Waite, what created his own, uh, you know, like, basically paramasonic structure uh like initiatic circle and uh and i thought he was like hey I'm not, now maybe i should just you know like publish the tarot deck so he asked um mm. pamela coleman smith who at some point herself was a member of the golden down and uh and they created it he created the, the deck in 1909 uh once all the golden down dissipation was kind of done but yeah so like it is a the the writer with smith is a an interesting artifact for that because it really speaks about um, um, the understanding of tarot as an esoteric tool in a country that doesn't play tarot as a game. You know, it's very, very. It was very, very hard to find a tarot deck, uh, a Marseille deck, um, in the 19th century in Great Britain. So it was introduced in the UK as um, specifically being very attached to the occult. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's almost like it depends on the context of like yeah. whether whether the tarot is a religious thing yeah. versus if it's yeah. just for fun. That is and, a really interesting And space. that's the thing, you know, that's also that what we do, you know, we tend to hijack stuff to make them something else, you know, like mm-hmm. we tend to, you know, like the card decks, you know, like any type of decks, tarot or card game can just be, you know, like used for, you know, like scrying or anything. And, uh, and I think this is what makes that culture, the cartomancy culture so fascinating is that, um, it's always evolving. It's always in movement. It's not really, uh, um, you know. It's it's so like this is one of the thing I wanted to add about the gender divide is that in a lot of those like nineteenth century uh, books, it totally poo poo's the cartomancers and all you know like kind of mm-hmm. fairground card reading culture and uh, and I think it's just interesting to see you know now like there is a well, women's are back in, you know, like uh, there is a very strong uh, new wave of cartomancer that privilege. You talked about them, you know, like Mary Greer uh, was one of the, you know, like pioneer in the, you know, like 60s, 70s. Uh, uh, Rachel Pollack as well, who unfortunately left us uh, a couple of um, months ago, uh, who wrote 78 Degrees of Wisdom, which is a very, very important uh, book in modern tarot practice. And it's a practice that is not that is imbued with um, esoteric, but mostly it's about introspection. It's about trying to understand who you are and where, 
you know, like um, the different um, energy that kind of circulating within you. And it's um, certainly promoting a practice that is a lot more introspective and maybe, you know, like less focus on the secret, but more into like, yeah, like s self development or, mm. you know, um, internal digging in culture. Yeah. So do you personally enjoy how popular yeah. tarot still is today? Well, of course, you know, I think tarot is an important device, you know, like, and I think it was, it was very interesting to see, um, the, um, you know, what happened through the pandemic, you know, like mm -hmm. suddenly people realized that they had a, a soul basically <laughs> and that no, they never took care of it. You know, I was reading and teaching cards before the pandemic. And, um, and so it's, it was interesting to me that people were not that interested in getting readings. I, you know, I, I did give a lot of readings, uh, but they were more interested in learning how to read the cards for themselves. Uh. And so it was not, it's not so much about like, Oh, I'm panicking. Please give me hope. Give me something. Give me, you know, like reassurance. It was about like trying to like create a connection with a card that allows to kind of re-engage in an inner dialogue. And I thought, you know, like, I mean, I'm pretty proud of people just to be interested in that stuff, having praying practices, having a tarot practice, whatever, whatever it means, you know, mm -hmm. for people, it is a very holy for people. It's just a way, like I told you before, when I was your age, I used to read cards every Sunday with my friends, you know, on the bedspread, you know, mm -hmm. kind of. And it was just a, a way to connect, you know, it was an extension of our friendship and, you know, like the friendship, the, the, the love and care we had for one another, you know, we were kind of opening, opening the, the emotional content of the, uh, the emotional content of the week <coughs> through, oh shit, went like the stuff are breaking down. <laughs> this is my, <laughs> it's a ghost. Well, it does sound like a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> So I think, you know, I think it's great. I think it's, you know, like, I feel people should be curious about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it, they can learn something about themselves, about their own depth, about the, the depth of people who've played with those cards, mm -hmm. you know, how far they went. Uh, I think it's a really beautiful culture. And uh, I'm very, um, you know, I'm very honored to be, uh, to have a small part into, you know, try to share it and, mm -hmm. and excite people with it, you know. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of something that one of my closest friends says, and she reads birth charts and things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people would ask her, like, oh, you believe in astrology and all yeah. this. And she said, well, regardless of whether people believe in it or don't believe in it, it builds human connection yeah. because you learn so much about somebody depending on how they react yeah. to what you say. So it's just such a foundational tool for for connecting yeah. both how in such a beautiful way to gain insight into how somebody situates themselves and their reality and how they see the world beyond them too so yeah. i guess well yeah that, that's yeah, the thing really that i love about tarot too is that you know, tarot is interesting to me because it's a trickster art form it is as i said earlier it's the perfect balance between profane and sacred vulgar and noble and uh, and i think part of what makes it interesting for me is that it is um it is a game in which you engage with the card uh so like you're not passive when you read cards the cards mm -hmm. tell you a story and the, and they basically tells you this is the story we have to tell you so you can take it or you can change it now mm -hmm. you play and um and i like that i like the idea that the cards are not necessarily here to tell the truth they tell you a story that you need to hear right now and that after that's your responsibility to engage with that story and then shape it the way you want to you want to hear you know so like i really say for me it, it, it is a it is a game you know it's a game where yeah. no one is passive you know the card are tricksters they can tell you you know, like it happened to me, you know, I read cards, I'm like, I, that's what I tell people, I'm the meat puppet, you know, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I'm just have a message to tell. And so I, I've had reading, which are, you know, like, I've never had a, a, a reading, I think, you know, maybe I have like, I had a couple where people were very upset. And then, you know, they just felt like, but uh, it never really happens. Uh, I had, uh, I had readings, though, where people are just like, they're like, yeah, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. You know, I tell like, they tell me like, yeah, you know, like is, and so they're upset, you know, mm -hmm. and, <laughs> but the upset is important. The emotional engagement is important. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so like what I tell people is that, you know, if you're upset, it's good. You know, like if you feel like you have to prove me wrong and that gives you the, the energy to actually just transform that part of your life, to, you know, but like, I think sometimes people really need to hear, no, that's not going to happen to be able to be like, wait a minute. This is not what I want. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do something out of this, and uh, and then so yeah, so people come you know like months later and say like you know that no really served me well, and um, mm. I hated hearing it, but it was important to hear because I've managed to branch out into that other direction, and without hearing that no, I wouldn't have been to. So that's yeah. such a good way to look at it. I think that um, it's so often seen as a definitive yeah. verdict. But it being a game is really like well, yeah, the and that's the thing, you know. Like this is maybe the you know this is cards are spiritual. They're not religious, you know. Mm-hmm. Like they're spiritual in the sense that they open fields of inquiries and that you can go and look into them. Mm-hmm. But uh, the cards are not dogmatic, and I can't remember. There, um, I think that I, re- I remember you had this question. Thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What was, what was it? it says on the topic of spiritual yeah. materialism versus material religion. Yeah. Is there a wrong way to practice tarot? Yeah, yeah, there is a wrong way to practice tarot. Believing that tarot is the the the, the soothsayers that is going to solve everything, uh, and then just like it's something you have to accept without flinching is not true. Believing that there is only one good way to read card, that one person can walk that earth, like whether it is like some cool 19th century guy or like this new person mm. who's on Instagram, including me, you know, like nobody, you know, like we're not here to be right or wrong about that stuff. We're just here to evolve around it, but it will always change in the context of a reading. There is nothing dogmatic about it. It's so the moment you kind of crystallize what the card means into one thing and you're like yeah well, my teacher told me this is like this so it must be this person must be wrong yeah you're practicing wrong you know i've never met anyone in my life told me like tarot is my god no mm-hmm. uh, i think tarot is a it's it's a it's a spirited it's like being friends with hermes personally you know mm-hmm. hermes being the messenger god but also the trickster god mm-hmm. you know like you you get what you get, and you just have to work, decipher those information, and do something with it, mm-hmm. and um, navigate. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a religion or like spiritual materialism in terms of like clinging to objects yeah. as the backbone of a spiritual well, thing. It's like the thing. This is the thing that is so fascinating to me. It's like the tarot has this very, very weird position because it's image and it's object at the same time. Because I got to see some of those cards, like the Renaissance cards, in in real person, and then when you when you see them on the screen of a computer or in a book, and then you see them as an object, they they are like they are icons, you know, mm-hmm. that, that there is a materiality to them, that like the the paper they're made of was you know like assembled by human, that the there is a human hand behind the eye, the eyes of that fool, that the per, that it was you can see the brush golden leafing, you know, like suddenly it opens this whole other level of understanding which is just basically so an object that has that owns the power of all the generation that gaze upon it played with it made it kept it restored it and and put value into it but yeah i'm a i'm a i'm a fetishist i think object wise i you know mm-hmm. like I, I do enjoy <laughs> images and i really i really believe that what makes you know like what what makes the tarot so special is like it's like a spiritual relationship to art you know Mm -hmm. it's you know it's image based so it is about you know like how we connect emotionally to image and stories before you know being something that gives us strong spiritual experience you know and then so like the you know people play with tarot because technically they've played with images all their life before you know i did this uh, like weird little lecture uh once and um and it's just like in the i think i opened with like showing pictures from like you know from the 80s you know showing teens in their rooms and you know how when we were a teen, there was a phase where we put all those posters in our house, you know. Like mm-hmm. We put posters, images, bands, art, movie posters, stuff that, because like, there is this this need to kind of like affirm our identity through the images that we, we surround ourselves with. Something mm-hmm. about a totemic connection to image. And I think tarot is uh, popular because it really plays on that universal understanding. You know, like there's something about those images that we that creates an enigma we are become curious about and mm-hmm. uh, and and we all kind of find our entrance door in it you know because it's very very easy visually mm. stimulating i love that i think that's a really good place to end actually I well it's that's great a- i thank you for letting me uh, rumble for no. <laughs> for so long no thank you for dedicating your life to this i feel like you're uh very much a living embodiment to the spirit of tarot in a way that's I'm Super very, I, you know, that's high praise. I feel like I'm just, you know, I'm just doing, uh, I'm doing this and I love it. And uh, it brings meaning to my life. It brings meaning to other people's life. So, and then maybe I'll do something else after mm-hmm. that.
crochet or (laughs) (laughs) I don't know crochet I love that is there anything you want to say to the people whether they're new to tarot or whether they've been practicing for years anything or do you feel like it's like don't forget don't forget that you're like don't forget you're natural don't forget that you know we we all have this strong intuitive suit that kind of guide us through images. So don't don't see it as like some kind of like complicated encyclopedic work. Just try to look at those images and see them with the other eyes, the eyes of the soul, really. You know. And that was it, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I certainly hope that everybody's walking away with a little bit more of a deeper understanding of tarot cards. And maybe when you walk past a gift shop window and you see some, or you see an Oracle deck at Family Dollar or whatever, you can um, maybe have a bit more insight into how those cards got there and what it all means, what it all means. Yeah, and if uh, you've never gotten your cards read and you're based in New York, even if you have gotten your cards read, you should hit up you should hit up Letitia Barbier on Instagram or any way that you can contact her. I think she has a LinkedIn too or a linked link a tree link a linked tree. Um, yeah, and maybe get your cards read if you felt like any of her words really spoke to you. Yeah. Um, so that's about it. You can find me on Instagram at fringe.religion, Patreon, patreon.com forward slash fringe religion. And I got another episode in the works already that is going to be real juicy. I'm super looking forward to it. I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite people. Oh, do I want to spoil it? I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite people, and it's going to be a very pride-themed episode of Fringe Religion. So very much looking forward to it. Again, thank you all for coming. I'm Zelda Reed. I'm your host and your co-conspirator. Um, yeah, hope to see you next time. All the love in the world. Bye-bye.